Howdy, we are back. It is the Selvius Godcast. I am TJ Zuppi. He is Zach Meisel. You can follow us on Twitter at TJ Zuppi and at Zach Meisel. Took us forever to come up with those usernames. And of course, you can find the Selvius Godcast at Selvius Godcast. I hope you wrote all that shit down because my God, is it a lot to keep track of? What's up, buddy? We need everybody to follow at Selby's Godcast because I think right now our follower count is is a smaller number than the pounds of weed that former Browns offensive tackle <laughs> Craig Robinson got busted with. Oh my! And I'm thinking up to 20 years he could be facing. That's like 17 Browns head coaches from now. Yeah, I mean he's the thing is if you're locked in that tiny prison cell, it's a lot harder to. Uh, get called for a false start or what do you like that's i always wonder what's going through the minds of criminals who get caught in the most obvious situations like where did you think you were going with that (laughs) i love yeah uh well you're having a better night it seems than uh any former left tackles of the cleveland browns you've been out in good year for a little over a week now You've had a time, some time to digest and see all the sights, the sounds, the smells, ugh, the smells of everything that's taking place out there. So before we really dive into some of the nitty gritty on topics we want to discuss this week, what has been some of your early takeaways of, of being around camp? And it's so easy to get. I always find it comical. We spend any time around any club in spring training just by hanging out around the team you start to pick up on optimistic vibes like oh well, this could happen and this could happen i could totally see all this shit happening and it being a real positive season it happens every single year yeah there's 30 teams right now that are in their camps thinking that the absolute best possible outcome for their season is definitely going to happen um you know we talked a little bit last podcast about like the gifts and the curses of the different parts of, of spring training. You got the days before games begin. And then obviously when the games start, it kind of just becomes like clockwork, just the same routine every day. Um, and then I know I said like it, it is challenging sometimes to really dig into certain stories and, and conversations with players at this time in camp just because it's so early. But the the coolest part of, honestly, maybe of any baseball season is just these days right now, when guys are so relaxed and they're so carefree and you just listen to the banter that goes on during stretching, during defensive drills, during live batting practice, that, that's been – it's always my favorite part every spring. But it's, it's been so much fun this year because you can see the, this transition that's taking place over the last couple of years where you had – you know, it was Kipnis and Brantley and Tomlin and Gomes and Kluber for a long time. And it's it's very clearly Francisco Lindor's team. It's been his team for a couple of years now. But it's Lindor and Ramirez and, like, Framil Reyes now. Um, and it's just so interesting uh, to, to see that transition. And Clevenger and Bieber, too, are, are emerging leaders in the clubhouse. But it's been fun watching all those guys interact and and. We're recording this on Wednesday, and and today was the perfect example where Lindor Ramirez and Santana have been a hitting group all spring, and they're they're warming up on a backfield, and and Bieber walks onto the field with, I think it was Ruben Niebla, and Lindor shouts, Bieber Day, and and Bieber goes, why are you so happy? And Lindor goes, because you're going to throw strikes. 
<laughs> and these guys, they just want to swing. Like they, you know, I know Karen checked through a day earlier and he's got electric stuff and, and he threw a, his fastball was all over the place. He was throwing really hard. His curveball was just nasty. And Jordan Luplo walks back to the dugout after standing in against him and says to a few teammates, do you guys see that foul tip? <laughs> and they all got a <laughs> laugh out of that. So I think like the guys were excited knowing Bieber's up there. He doesn't walk anybody. He's going to be in the strike zone. So they can actually like, get ready and, and take swings and make contact and see how it feels. Um, and then quickly, <laughs> Lindor realized after a couple swings and misses, foul tips, he's, he said, seems like it's going to be a long day. And then next thing you know, Bieber broke two. Lindor brought two bats to the field. Bieber broke them both. Um, and they got a good laugh out of that. So Bieber looks sharp. Um, and it's just like, it's that sort of insight and that banter that, you don't get at any point in the season. And it's just, it's amazing the, the things you see and pick up on at this time in spring training. Well, everyone's working with the same batting average, the same ERA. Nobody's riding a cold streak or a hot streak. There's no game on the line later that night. The pressure is just, I mean, there's a lot of guys that I'm sure are already feeling pressure. They feel like they've got to win a spot on the team on day one. We've seen many players fall victim to that in years past where, they're probably putting way too much pressure on themselves and it gets in the way of them actually just playing the game. But that's what makes this part of, of the season fun. And it will get monotonous very quickly. <laughs> and the games start to drag on by about, uh, what, seven games into the schedule. Uh, but it is, it's cool because you get all the good parts of, about baseball without necessarily having every night bogged down by what happened in the seventh inning or, or having to focus on something negative. You can spend a lot of time kind of dismissing things that could be red flags while also digging into to optimistic things, and you're not ignoring something uh, that could be critical to the team and where they ended up finishing. You know, you're just getting to, to dig in on some cool stories, some fun stories, sometimes some feel-good stuff. And it just makes for a, a, just a so much happier time of year as opposed to once you get into April and May and you get off to a rough start and everyone's already thinking, shit, they're going to be trading Lindor any day now. Yeah, I mean, I, Jake Bowers is a good example. Um, and I know Mandy Bell and I both wrote about him. And look, I don't expect anyone to just automatically assume, hey, this guy said all the right things, so he's going to hit 300 with you know 35 home runs this year and be an MVP candidate. Um, no, I mean, he knows it's going to take proving himself to people to, to get them to buy in. Um, but it's, it's amazing what it can do when you're able to take a step back because during a season, if you're in a funk, you don't want to talk to reporters. You don't want to look at the scoreboard and see your stats. You don't want to look at social media. It's really tough. And it's tough to take a step back and, and tinker with your swing or tinker with your pitching mechanics and know like, okay, I made this change. Now it's perfect. And I'm going to go up there. And what I'm going to do is going to work exactly how I want it to. And so like Bowers, for example, I mean, he, he came to Cleveland for a swing camp in October. Ty Van Berkeley and Alex Eckelman, who's the team's director of hitting development, worked with him for four days in the cage. And, and they altered his, his stance and his swing and, and kind of showed him the why behind all of it. Instead of just saying, do this, and this will happen. And, you know, he, he came out of it saying, I feel like I knew absolutely nothing about hitting before this week. And it takes 
it takes that sometimes and it takes an off season and you come to spring training and it's like, you don't have that weight. You don't have that. All right. I have to go three for four tonight to get my average back up or, you know, to avoid being sent down or to lose playing time. Um, and you don't have that weighing on you and everyone's so much more carefree and in good spirits. And it's like, like, I, I know how you can get carried away falling into the, well, I've, been around this team or I've seen nothing but like positive news for six weeks. So I think <laughs> this team that I follow is going to win 130 games. Um, but you know, some guys, it does end up working out that way. And it's just fun in spring training this early on to see like that, that positive attitude, especially when, I mean, the off season, the Indians had where it seemed like we talked about nothing but trading franchise cornerstones and, and payroll um, it's just a nice change of pace. And you got the sun shining. You got Framil Reyes singing Basket Case by Green Day. He's sing- he, he walks past me and he's singing the, the chorus. And I'm like, I recognize those words. But like, <laughs> I, I, and what song is he singing? And I'm thinking about it and thinking about it. And then I'm like singing it to myself. And I'm like, God, this guy knows like everything. Because I remember I saw a video last year. of He was singing uh, Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You in the Padres dugout. I'm like... <laughs> What a diverse individual. Great musical taste. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. From that to Billy Joe Armstrong, two strong vocal uh, titans of our time. <laughs> you know, it, it, with you spending so much time out there, it's funny that I can now play the devil's advocate to you with the Jake Bowers situation. And we were texting a little bit about it when you were writing about it. You know, he said a lot of this stuff last year when I talked to him about you know, t- working with a private hitting instructor. And I even asked him, do you ever get to the point where when you work with these hitting instructors that you, you find that you don't even know anything about hitting. And at the time he was really confident. He said, it just gives you a different thing to think about, but I feel like I had the good uh, base in place already to feel like I, I knew what I had to accomplish this off season to be successful this year in Cleveland. So I, and I, that's not to, to crap on anything that Jake Bowers, it sounds like he did anything the team or everything the team wanted him to do this winter, but it is easy to get caught up. And I think that's the point you're, you're trying to stress. Everybody feels good about themselves this time of year, no matter what year it is, everybody feels like they've, they're onto something that will unlock uh, the hidden talent or what hasn't been on display. Uh, they've made the necessary changes. And sometimes it, it might be, just in a way of trying to convince themselves that, hey, I'm in a, right, a good spot here and, and I've done everything I need to do. So it, it can be tough to kind of sift through the bullshit to know what, what to believe in and, and what not to believe in. And for some guys, it's just a matter of until you actually see them do it, you can't give them too much of the benefit of the doubt. doesn't mean that you're not encouraged or at least interested in seeing what a guy like Jake Bowers does this year. This is a huge year for him where if he goes through this year and he has uh, another bad year, he gets optioned to, to AAA, or he doesn't even make the opening day roster, doesn't get a lot of time, he goes from being a guy that is, still has that excuse of, well, he's young, to no longer being young. I mean, the prospect label has waved bye-bye to him, but you could still say he's young, he can make some adjustments, there's still room for a ceiling there. But if he goes through this year and has even more struggles, then, then that's gone. And then you're, you're, you're already starting to... Uh, put declarations on the type of career that he will have. So that's why uh, it, it is a big year for him. And, and I, 
I hope he is able to stay confident through it because I think it'll be easy to go through this season and, and lose confidence knowing everything that's kind of on the line for him. Yeah, I mean, the, we, we don't often take the time to recognize the mental side of the game. And we can look at the baseline statistics. We can look at the underlying metrics. And, you know, really for Jake Powers, we were talking about it. It's like there's not much pointed in the direction to encourage you that he's due for a huge season. Um, but you, yeah, you it'd be that, nice if you could just look at a hard hit percentage. Oh, well, he got exactly. unlucky here. Or if he did this over over here, if he made this adjustment, that clearly would lock unlock everything. Uh, I don't think that's the case for him. But but you you consider the the year he had where he gets traded to Cleveland. He comes into a clubhouse and he said this. He's like, I knew nobody. You know, it's it's all guys who have been teammates for a while. He didn't really fit in. I don't think he made a ton of friends. Um, and it's not, you know, an indictment necessarily on him or an indictment on, on the other players. It's just, it's hard sometimes. Um, and if you don't hit right, if you think you're going to hit and, and win people over with your play and then you don't, that's when, yeah, what else do you got to stand on at that point? Yeah. You can kind of just become an outcast in the sense of like, what is this guy contributing to, to everything? I, I mean, this isn't – I'm not comparing the two at all because they're completely different people. But it's kind of what happened to Nick Swisher where when he's hitting 210 and it's just awful, that, that rah-rah attitude just kind of started to rub people in the wrong way. And it got his, – his act got tired. Um, and with Jake Bowers, it was like – it was just so much negativity where he couldn't stop paying attention to social media and he was – didn't have a great work ethic, and, and the, the Indians did not like his routines. He found himself in Terry Francona's office having just airing of grievances multiple times during the season. Um, and, you know, mentally, I think he was he was like, well, this isn't working. What am I going to do? And, and maybe I change this. It's still not working. Do I change this? Still not. And it's like eventually you just – it's like a snowball rolling downhill, mm-hmm. and all that negativity piles on top of it. And you walk into the batters. He said this. He's like – you walk into the batter's box not trusting what you're doing, not knowing if it's going to work, and then you take three fastballs down the middle and you walk back to the dugout. So I, I'm curious to see, you know, if it's easy to say, especially at the beginning of the year, but like you said, you know, you have all the confidence in the world and reason to believe that what you're doing is going to be different. How soon, you know, if you struggle on March 26th for the first week of the season, yep. is that completely disappear? Or do you do you have enough belief and confidence that you can turn it around? It's interesting, and he's not the only one in that position either. No, and the Indians are going to need some of those guys to capitalize on their newfound optimism because uh, they need some some guys to take steps forward. All right, so I was a little bit too negative, and it overcompensates for the positivity I had towards him in spring training last year. So let me bring it back to something that might be positive. He worked a lot with the team this offseason. That's something he didn't do last year. He worked with an independent hitting coach, someone that had helped unlock some other big league careers, uh, but maybe just wasn't working out or translating well with Bowers, or maybe it just became convoluted and confusing when you're working with a private instructor than you're working with the team. So he spent the winter, at least portions of the winter, working with the Indians, listening to their message, and now he's going to be around those same group of people with the team that is now employing somebody in the dugout. To, to help work on those sorts of things. He'll be around a lot of the same personalities that he was working with 
all throughout the winter. So maybe a consistent message for him around guys that as long as he's going through and doing the process well, that will at least help help him stay somewhat confident if he doesn't have success immediately out of the gate. Does that can that be viewed as a little bit of a positive there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this staff is just it's massive. They add more <laughs> coaches by the day. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how everyone works together because it's not even just they're going to have 12 coaches on the staff now, I think, if my math is correct. I've tried to add that up properly like 100 times because I feel like I'm always forgetting somebody. But you think about the pitching side. It's You now have this three-headed monster with Carl Willis, Ruben Niebla, and Brian Sweeney, which we've talked about their roles and, and what they bring to the table. That doesn't take into account the fact that Eric Binder, who is technically a front office member, is basically like the analytics pitching guy and he brings the analytic the, the data to the table he makes every mm-hmm. road trip and and he collaborates with those guys alex merberg who's a, a free agent or free agent front office guy um similar type deal with him so you've got four or five guys collaborating every single day on the pitching side well now you've got the incorporation of justin tool who it's the same thing but with hitting and you're you've got this guy whose primary focus is going to be bringing Hitting analysis, using data, bringing that to the attention of Ty Van Berkleo and Victor Rodriguez, and maybe getting that information to players in a way that's easy for them to digest. And so, yeah, it's it's something they haven't had, and, and now it'll be interesting to see how that plays. You know, another funny little anecdote is Lindor and Justin Toole played together in the minors for three years before Toole transitioned <laughs> to, to coaching. And they were standing together on the on one of the fields um and Lindor goes when we played together if I knew you were going to be my coach I would have listened to you a lot more (laughs) and they got Uh, a good laugh out of that I think it's still working out all right for for Lindor and Tool is an interesting one he's one of the guys that helped work with Oscar Mercado over the winter and and we saw Mercado make some positive strides and his rookie year and and I, I think it'll be really interesting to see if there's room for growth with him and something else that I was thinking about is you're talking about having somebody else on the staff that helps the hitting coaches in place. You know, think about it. I, I don't think because a lot of people hear Ty Van Berkley or what he says and they think, oh, well, he's just this old school guy that doesn't incorporate numbers, doesn't care about that stuff. And we know that that's not true. We've we've seen him carry around data. We've heard him talk about exit velocity and hard hit percentage and, and all sorts of things that gives credence to his Ty's ability to to sift through the data and actually use it, but think of it too that that language for hitting coaches that have been around the game for as long as as the Indians hitting coaches have been, that's a second language to them. They might use it, they might know what to do with it, but can they translate that to the players when it's already their second language? Isn't it beneficial to have somebody there that could? make it like their first language and help translate that to the players probably a little bit better. Does that analogy make sense at all? Am I making any fucking sense right now? <laughs> no, I mean, you, you, we need a translator between so that what you say uh, can make sense to our listeners. Um, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. But I, you know, it, it's, it's like the most, it's one of the most important things in the game today is, 
just making all this information, you have so many numbers, so many charts and graphs and lists, and you need it to make sense so that people aren't overwhelmed and they're not like they know what's important and what's not. And we can we can talk about this, I think, in a future podcast. So I need to go back and listen. I sat down with Adam Plucko today for a long time, and we were talking about. I know you've written about it. Um, he he was talking at Tribe Fest about his curveball and how he wants it to be basically his best pitch, and it had some features of it last year that were encouraging, but he was just it wasn't efficient enough, and it wasn't um, he he it wasn't like in position to be a successful pitch basically. And he was detailing the whole process of how he went about completely redesigning the pitch for this year and making sure it's something that plays well, not only off of his, his fastball, but also just can be his leading pitch and all the different things he studied. And he worked with so many, like all the people I just named, he he was talking with Niebla, talking with Carl Willis, talking with Brian Sweeney, talking with Eric Binder, all off-season um, as he's working through this process. It's kind of like what Trevor Bauer did a couple of years ago when he just created that slider out of thin air. Um, but it's, it's, it's amazing because he's showing me all these charts and these, these data points that he was looking at and, and all the things that go into it. It's, it's really like, like I remember in eighth grade, this is, this is a really stupid analogy, but in eighth grade, <laughs> We spent like the entire school year doing a science like that. Remember science fair projects? Yeah, yeah. Was that the like one you spent like the cardboard cutouts? And, yeah, the tripod. And I just remember open that bad boy up and like look at this. Here's photosynthesis, bitch. <laughs> I remember I cooked potatoes in the microwave, and <laughs> my like the bottom line of my project was that the bigger the potato, the longer it took to heat up. Like, <laughs> whoa, what a discovery! Galileo, <gasps> Newton, Meisel. Um, but, but the point is, it's it's like a science fair project in that, first of all, there's a ton of science involved in this. And also, it takes freaking months. And you, you hope that you finish. You, you're, you're hopeful that you can get the results you want in spring training. And that's when you know for sure. Well, I guess you really don't know for sure until the regular season because those are the games that count. But you get a pretty good idea in spring training. And so it's it, Plutko kept stressing that it, it's critical because he knew like the terms spin efficiency and spin rate and stuff like that. But he didn't ex- really know or understand what they meant and how he could use those things to his benefit until people explained it to him basically starting at the end of last season. And so it's, it's one of the, the most critical things. And, and you think about Guys come from all different backgrounds, different education levels. You think about the Indians. Remember, we talked about they now have an education program at their Dominican complex. They want people to get smarter. They want people to be able to communicate well. And this all goes hand in hand with it, it's all about learning. That, that's what spearheads development. And the better you're able to do that, the more you're going to be able to adapt to the major leagues, adapt to the way the game is changing and handle all of the information that can be thrown your way. So just, this is, I'm, I know we didn't plan on on covering this topic, but it's, it's just amazing all the perspectives and all the information that go 
into seriously like every single thing that gets done in in baseball these days I mean, it's just the wealth of information has changed everything you don't remember when i said we were going to talk jake bowers and adam plutko for 20 minutes you, you missed that memo that i had sent you I, I we haven't know. mentioned max moroff yet <sighs> Bing, there it is it's important to to be able to seek out data but it's also it's not just hearing about it it's it's it is openly seeking it out, and it's showing a passion for it, a genuine interest for it. Those that, that really want to know more are the – I mean, yes, you got to have talent on top of everything, but the ones that are going to get the most out of their ability are the ones that don't just do it because uh, this is what the coaches want them to do, and it's semi-interesting, but you're not really into it other than, hey, maybe this will help me get better. For Adam Plutko, it's not – it's not just the fact that he's out of options and probably at a stage in his career here where he feels like, okay, I really have to prove something if I'm going to get another major league job after this. It's also his attitude towards it that makes it easier to say, yeah, this guy deserves a chance despite the fact that his major league numbers so far have not been that impressive. And it goes back to something that he talked about. You had written about this last year when you were talking about the pitching factory and researching that. And he had mentioned that the coaches and, and anyone that, that, that would help him in his development were talking about throwing the fastball more up in the zone. And that it's not something that he was very eager to do, knowing he doesn't have a 97-mile-per-hour four-seamer to rip off. Um, mm-hmm. But that he was willing to, to listen to that and try to incorporate that a little bit. And he did. In the final two months, he started throwing the fastball a little bit more up in the zone really started burying the curveball down in the zone a little bit more frequently, and it helped lead to some better results. And it was just his willingness and openness and eagerness to learn more and try to incorporate that into his pitching that I was like, okay, there's more to this guy than I think we've seen so far before. And it's, it's why when people were talking about the ideal starting rotation, I know Clevenger's injury kind of clouds this, a lot of people just passed Plutko quickly and said, yeah, well, I'd rather have Plesak and I'd rather have Savali. And I'm pumping the brakes just a little bit to say, let's, let's see what he's got here because I'm interested to see if, if everything that he has done this offseason can translate into something better than what we've seen before. So, and that leads me to this, is that maybe we had mentioned this in a, in a previous podcast. Every season is its own entity. It's why if you're predicting... The Twins are going to win the division because they won the division last year and they added Donaldson and Maeda. That's fine reasoning for a prediction, but that doesn't guarantee anything. And if you're thinking that the Indians won 93 games last year and they had all these injuries and everything went wrong and that all that can't possibly go wrong again, so they're going to win 95 games, that's not how this works. Guys take steps forward. Guys take steps back. Sometimes it's injury related. Sometimes it's just the laws of law of averages or regression. Or maybe guys weren't as good as they seem to be. Maybe guys are better than they seem to be. It's just shit happens. Like, and I look at this division and, and a lot of people have been asking, like, you know, where are the Indians gonna finish? Are they gonna finish to, can they win the division? Of course they can win the division. Can the White Sox win the division? Yeah, maybe. I think a lot would have to go right for them, but they have a lot of young talent, and we don't know how quickly they're going to realize that talent. 
and and maybe it happens in 2020. Um, and I just think I've just seen it a lot where it seems like people just the way they forecast this season and the way they they their attitude is toward the season is really based on what happened last year and then off season moves. And so much of baseball is is just which guys take steps forward and how big of a step is that and, and how many guys like if Jose Ramirez isn't literally the worst hitter in the league in April, May and most of June last year, I mean, maybe the Indians win the division. Maybe something's changes. Like it's just, we never really know year to year. Every year is so different. And it's why, I mean, it's bullpens are the best example of that where year to year, you could have the same group and have completely different results. And it's just, again, shit happens. There's one final thing that I wanted to talk about before we, we got out of here for, for this edition um, and it's pertinent because it's something Tito talked about. It's something that Frankie Lindor talked about. And we're not discussing extensions. We're talking about lineups. And I was so eager that this finally got brought up because it's something that has to do with in-game strategy that we can actually talk about and everyone kind of has an opinion about. And whether or not it, it really, truly makes a difference in a season, I mean, yeah, you want to optimize your lineup as best as possible, and it's probably worth a couple – extra runs throughout the year maybe half of a quarter of a fraction of a point of a win throughout the year but if you can maximize the lineup why not do it but it's finally something that revolves around like baseball on the field something that you could actually talk about that's not just transaction related money related or Lindor trade related so finally lineups give me your ideal Indians lineup right now Oh man, Delano to Shields one, uh, Greg <laughs> Allen two. No, I I don't know. So okay, I, I want to make a couple points really quick first. Number one, we know Terry Francona loves balance, and in the past, I think he loved balance to a fault, where he always wanted to separate his switch hitters. He, God forbid, lefties hit back to back. That was like a felony. Um, does he like I'm, balance as much as you and Ryan Lewis? Uh, balance Pan Asian Grill in downtown Cleveland. A great, great spot. And maybe they'll listen to this and advertise with us. Um, I, I wonder what the new rule will do because balance might actually be more important now if pitchers have to stay in there for three batters. Well, if you have lefty, 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 then... Yeah, it makes sense to bring in that left-handed reliever. Um, if you have lefties and righties separated and switch hitters all over the place, which the Indians have their entire infield is switch hitters, um, you know, that, that's an advantage. So I, I don't know. I, I, and I know all the rules of like, well, you want your best hitters hitting at the top of the order, but like the three hole is not good. That's what the data says. I, I don't know. I, I just know I don't want Jose Ramirez hitting fifth. I feel like that's yeah, that's a waste. <laughs> what? I texted you. I'm like, man, this is setting up for Jose Ramirez separating Fran Mill Reyes and Domingo Santana, isn't it? It's I'm gonna, gonna see. Happen. I'm gonna yeah. see Reyes four, Ramirez five, and Santana six. And I get breaking up the righties and the righties that strike out a lot. But I don't want to see any lineup that features Jose Ramirez batting fifth. It was 
it was tough to swallow when this was initially happening, what, three years ago, four years ago, whatever the hell it is now. Uh, despite everything that's happened, like, Jose Ramirez pretty much disappeared and was only visible on milk cartons for an entire calendar year. And still, with that being the case, he's the Indians' most productive hitter over the past three years among anyone that you want to talk about. So he should not ever, ever, ever be hitting below fourth. I'll give you fourth. Never hit below fourth. Yeah, I, it's, it's weird because I also probably, I, I mean, I, I would think Framil Reyes and Domingo Santana probably should be separated. Um, just because they're both slow, they'll clog up the bases. There's a lot of swing and miss there. But I, who who would hit that low? You don't want Santana and his 397 on base percentage that low. Yeah. You don't want Lindor or Ramirez that low. So it's it's weird. I, the other thing is, if Cesar Hernandez is 2016-2017 Cesar Hernandez, and those two years he hit 294 with a 372 on base. Like, yep. I'd be fine, and he has some speed. He would steal 15, 20 bases a year. I'd be fine him hitting first, switch hitter, gets on base a lot, can run a little bit. I mean, I, I'd be fine with that, and then have all your your big boppers after that. But it's still – like, I still don't really like that because then you're guaranteeing that either Lindor, Santana, or Ramirez is going to hit kind of low. So – I know yeah. I would put Domingo Santana sixth. That's all I know. <laughs> okay, well, we could work backwards. Roberto Perez that. eighth, probably. Here's, here's the biggest problem I have, um, because I always wrestle back and forth with, do you want to go with the strategy of best hitter in the two-hole, second best hitter in the four spot, third best hitter, you're on base guy hitting first, and... Your fourth best hitter hitting fifth and your fifth best hitter hitting third. Do I want to follow all of the rules that the books say? Or do I want to throw all that shit out the window and say, who are my best hitters? Get them to the freaking plate as much as possible. It's why I – and I know people have, have pointed to all the, the reasons why Francisco Lindor doesn't work as leadoff hitter. And I just wrote about this at, uh, at SI.com, Cleveland Baseball Insider. I also think to myself, whether or not you're jumbling your best hitters somewhere in the top four, we're probably talking about something that is so small that it doesn't even matter to, to begin with to be talking about these sorts of advantages that you might get. But the second thing is, if I know I'm guaranteeing myself Francisco Lindor can get to the plate, uh, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 more times throughout the year just by hitting on one spot, sooner than, than where he's at in the two-hole or maybe more if he's hitting even lower, then I'm okay with that because I'm just concerned with at the end of the year when I stack up and I sort the, the column by plate appearances, it better be some combination real high of Francisco Lindor, Jose Ramirez, and Carlos Santana. If those three guys are somewhere within the ballpark of each other, then the lineup did its job, and that's, that's really all I care about. So sometimes I get too caught up and, and get too cute of, of how to put together the lineup when you could just stack your best hitters and let them go. Yeah. I mean, they could just go one, two, three. But I don't – skeptical that that would happen. Uh, I, think. I, I agree. Because then you're ending up with and... – yeah, and then you get Reyes four, Santana five, a couple of righties who strike out a lot. And then what do you do? Do you do <sighs> Hernandez six? Seems a little weird. Uh, Jake Bowers, is he going to play against righties? I think I mean, Hernandez... If, the other thing is, 
Well, this this lineup against lefties is actually really good because Luplo could. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he's, right. he's a guy you'd want hitting like third or fourth. Yeah, I, I mean, I even made a case where throw him up there in the leadoff spot against lefties, and you either force teams to make a a decision earlier in the game with their left-hander that they're going to come up and face Luplo again, or maybe he gets an extra plate appearances plate appearance as opposed to if he was hitting fourth or fifth in the lineup. So, I mean, yeah, I think he he's a guy that when I look at how the, the lineup looks against left-handers, especially now with Domingo Santana in there, uh, I think it looks just fine. Um, but, yeah, against the righties, it's just there's no easy answers if you're trying to get creative with the lineup. I, I, I am curious. Do you think there is anything to the completely unquantifiable somewhere in the category of will to win and total heart do you think there is anything to someone being a spark plug for the offense, an, an igniter for the offense, somebody that gets guys fired up? Do you think that makes any difference whatsoever? And do you think there's anything to that when it comes to Lindor hitting first? <sighs> he does have a lot of leadoff home runs. Um, but that's easy way to get you an early lead. Yeah. And it's know. a great way to stay in shape. I mean, who is – I feel like every single person in Cleveland is biased because Kenny Lofton was the one leadoff hitter who transcended eras. It didn't matter if it was in the 90s when your leadoff guy was supposed to be fast and your number two guy was supposed to be able to bunt, and then you'd stack your power hitters. Or, like, Kenny Lofton would still be leading off today, I think. And he, or he should be. Had a super high on base percentage. Could run like the wind. Um, hit a ton of doubles and triples. And so I, I always find myself comparing every leadoff hitter to Kenny Lofton, which is not fair and not um, just not accurate from a, a practical standpoint. Um, oh, he's not a should-be Hall of Famer? Oh, yeah, but he was, but like he was a spark plug, and he was also a perfect leadoff guy. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I there's no like there's no perfect lineup with this team. It's just you're gonna have you're you're gonna feel a little weird about it, I think, no matter how you assemble it. Okay. And I asked that because uh, if you're if you're doing this like we're assembling in a hardball dynasty lineup, then no, of course. You just look at what somebody's ratings are and you go off of that, but we are talking about real human beings, not robot umpires here. And sometimes I, f- I feel like there there is a little something that we can't quantify as far as an energetic guy that, that gets people engaged in the game more quickly or perhaps could be more fearsome for a pitcher starting a game. Would you be more fearful as a pitcher of Carlos Santana to lead off the game or Francisco Lindor? I, Despite the fact that Santana had a tremendous offensive year last year, I feel like if I make a mistake to Francisco Lindor, I'm going to be behind one nothing. I agree, but if Santana's at the plate, you're also more prone to walk him and yeah, start down. And and then next thing you know, you're facing Lindor, and then it's the same thing. I I feel like if Lindor loves it, if and what he has said to us from the past few years is truthful, and your your star is into it. He embraces that. He, he finds that to be something he truly enjoys. And he is 
pretty good at it. Might not be the best at it, but is pretty good at it. I'm generally okay with him just leading off and not overthinking it too much. But if you had, if you gave me the option to do whatever I wanted and I didn't have to take anybody's feelings into account, I would put Carlos Santana at the top of the lineup. I lean toward that way, but I don't know. I, I still feel like I want my, I mean, the dude hit 34 home runs last year. And, but that's, that has been atypical for his career. That's not usually what you see for Santana. His last two years with the Indians, he hit 34 apiece, I think. Oh, that's right. We're forgetting 2018 ever happened. I forgot about that. He never went to Philly. Well, I think we can, we agree on one thing, right? Oscar Mercado probably should be near the bottom. Uh, No, I like him in the two spot bunting. It's just making you lose your mind. Yes, of course he should be hitting somewhere. I think he'd be good. In, I mean, I, I kind of I like him in the nine spot. Well, the the only problem is I like. Well, I guess this changes based on who's in the the number one hole. Um, when it's Lindor hitting in the nine spot, I want to try to get as much on Wait, base what? as possible. Or sorry, if it's Lindor hitting the one spot, I want to get. Uh, I know he joked about it, but geez, he was kidding, TJ. <laughs> I want to get somebody down there that gets on base a little bit more frequently than Mercado. Because last year he had a 318 on base percentage. Um, well, Roberto Perez ain't it, man. Well, Roberto gets on base. They had the same on base percentage 321, 318. So Roberto was better. Uh, yeah. Well, if, if you're going Sandy to. Sandy Leone, I know he's going to be hitting ninth. If you're going to. If you're going to go with Santana up there, then yeah, Mercado might make a little bit more sense in the nine spot. But uh, that, I mean, I mean, we're talking about eight and nine. I mean, that we're not accomplishing anything. It's only the top of the lineup in the first inning. That's <laughs> true. I think Cesar Hernandez could be a f- fun plug and play lineup sort of guy in that wherever you put him, you're probably going to get league average offense with. I'm going to say that at least some of last year was an anomaly with his giant drop in walk rate and that he's going to be somewhere closer to what his career on base percentage has been. So let's say he gets on base 35% of the time. The fact that he's a switch hitter that gets on base 35% of the time, still has speed, doesn't clog up the bases, you could utilize that anywhere. Like We're talking about the three-hole not being that important. It's like maybe that's where you could plug him in. And he's going to get on base for if Lindor's hitting cleanup. Now you have a guy on in front of of Lindor that does get on base. So maybe it's Santana, Ramirez, Hernandez, Lindor. Now you come out with four switch hitters right out of the gate. And just knock the pitcher out of the game. <laughs> well, don't remember, worry. he has to don't, face at least three of those four. <laughs> don't, don't worry about what's going to happen innings from now. Just stack all your hitters and let's go. Yeah, I... None of these options sound perfect to me. I don't know. So I guess we'll see what works and what doesn't. Um, you know, if Jake Bowers is as turned around as, as he thinks he might be, maybe he should hit first. No? Crickets? All right. I understand. What about Domingo Santana? He actually gets on base some of the time. You could plug him in the, the three-hole. You used to have a right-handed hitter up there. Then you could put Lindor fourth, Reyes fifth. 
Here's what I know about lineup construction. Carlos Gonzalez batted cleanup one day last year, and the next year he was designated. The next day he was designated for assignment. So, you know, what happens on March 26th might not happen on <laughs> March 28th. I know. July 28th. Just, I, you, I'm just happy to be able to talk actual baseball things that don't involve trash cans, payroll, or Lindor trades. So, forgive me. Yeah, we survived the offseason. It's a good feeling. And I just need a t-shirt. Okay, random any of the day. You ready? I'm nervous. Let's go. Right, so this man spent parts of nine years in the major leagues. I really hope that we haven't done this one before. Parts of nine years in the major leagues, including 2008 with the Cleveland Indians, a, a season in which he also appeared with the Atlanta Braves. So total in that season, he made 27 appearances. 15 of those came with the Indians. He finished six games, tossed 17 and two-thirds innings, giving up three home runs, 11 earned runs. It didn't go so well. A 551 FIP and a 560 ERA out of the bullpen in 2008. Oh, man, that season was such a mess. Uh, Scott Sauerbeck. It is not Scott Sauerbeck. All right, so as I mentioned, nine years in the major leagues. He spent five years with the Baltimore Orioles. Then he was also a member of the Diamondbacks, Mets, Rockies, Braves, Marlins, Brewers, and Indians. His final year in the major leagues was 2009 with Milwaukee. He only made 15 appearances, 779 ERA. Lefty or righty? He was a right-hander. He had his second year in the major leagues and 67 appearances with the Baltimore Orioles. He had a 199 ERA out of the bullpen. Jorge Julio? It is Jorge Julio. Wow. He was so forgettable. Man, he was good with Baltimore. Yeah, he was their closer. How did he? Where? So were the Indians the second to last team he played for? Uh, let me let me check here because unless he went to Atlanta me. after Cleveland. Uh, let's see, two thousand signed as a free agent by the Indians, January thirty first, two thousand eight. Released by the Indians on May twenty eighth, two thousand eight. Signed as a free agent with the Braves, June thirteenth, two thousand eight. Then came back with the Brewers. Released by the Brewers on June second. Actually signed with the Tampa Bay Rays in two thousand nine. Was released by the Rays a month later. Signed with the Pirates a few days after that, and that was the end of his career. Uh, two thousand eleven, actually two thousand eleven, he signed with the Pirates again, but he had not appeared in the major leagues uh, after two thousand nine. I get him confused with Jairo Asensio. Yeah, close. Jorge Julio. He, Asensio was, I think, twenty twelve with the Indians. Yes. That couple sounds, of miserable seasons. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Julio made his debut at the age of 22, and his last game in the major leagues was June 1st, 2009, against the Florida Marlins, a game which maybe the Marlins were banging on trash cans, and that's why he never appeared in the major leagues again, and he can sue them. Just kidding. That, that's not what actually happened. At least I don't think so. I don't have proof of that. I feel a little bit like the commissioner of baseball. It's like, well, I can't exactly prove that they didn't do that. So, 
take it for what it is. I keep forgetting that the Indians are going to be the first team to play at Minute Maid Park against the Astros <laughs> in those two exhibition games a few days before the season starts. That's going to be interesting. I cannot wait to see what fan reaction is to this team on the road. Yeah, I'm curious to see if, I mean, I don't, I'm sure teams can't do like mini trash can giveaways, but... <laughs> I'm sure teams will play funny songs or you'll get some minor league teams that'll poke fun of it. Um, maybe with some giveaways or something. It's going to be interesting. It's certainly not going to die. No. The storyline is here to stay. And so many times this, this shit gets so overplayed and I'm so tired of it. But every news cycle where there's something new, I cannot get enough. Even LeBron weighing in on it. It's like, yeah, yeah, give me more of that. I'm just getting out the popcorn. Every single time somebody opens their mouth, because it's it's like this this four letter network cycle where somebody says something, so then somebody reacts to that something being said. Now the original person has to react to their reaction, and then the reaction of the reaction of the reaction continues, and it never stops. And I'm I'm hearing so much. Well, at some point you got to move on. Well, it's not really up to the Astros to decide when people are going to move on. I'm sorry, that's kind of out of their hands now. And now are you going to get a pitcher accidentally hits Jose? Like, whoever's facing them the first game <laughs> this season is going to be so nervous because, like, if, if they hit the first batter by accident, they're going to get tossed and suspended for Lord knows how long. Um, I don't know. There's going to be all these different ramifications. It, it goes for, like, the three-batter rule, too. Just yeah. shit we haven't thought about that could happen based on Stuff that's gone on with the Astros and, and certain things that have been said, but also like these new rules, just like everything's going to have ramifications. It's going to be fun to watch everything play out. And it's going to be fun to be back here again to record a podcast that you can catch on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, Spotify. We thank those of you that help support the podcast each and every single week over at Anchor, anchor.fm slash Selby is Godcast if you'd like to Help support the podcast and keep this baby going. Any final words? No, I don't think so. All right, I don't know. we're out of here. I, it's okay. That's fine. <laughs> Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. The Selby is Godcast, featuring Zach Meisel and TJ Zuppi, is presented by our supporters at Anchor. To help support the podcast. Visit anchor.fm slash Godcast. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do, be sure to leave us a five-star review. And if you have suggestions, drop us a DM on Twitter at Godcast. Thanks for listening. Before history is written... Played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday.